My name is Adam. I'm one of the elders here, and I have the great opportunity and pleasure of uh, sharing God's Word with you again this morning. We've been working through the book of James, and so we're in the next-to-last sermon in that whole series, so um, building the anticipation of uh, finishing this book. But I'd just like to welcome you here this morning. If it's your first Sunday with us, we're so glad that you chose to be here this morning. I pray that you just feel the love and uh, friendship from this congregation uh, members. If you see someone that you don't recognize that may be here for the first time, don't let them leave without greeting them, saying hello, and uh, making them feel welcome this morning. So I'd like to start this morning by telling you a story about what a great husband I am. My, wife, my wife's not in here, so she can't back this up, but, um, and I know I shouldn't boast. Like, uh, even the, the heading for the passage this week probably should not get into this. But, but can I just tell y'all, I got Jennifer the best Christmas present this year. Um, she'll admit it even. And uh, I broke our, our spending limit that we had set for each other, but I think she's forgiven me. And you see, we, we both love to go and see Broadway musicals. And I know that as I'm standing here, this, you know, bearded, manly man, right? Uh, maybe I shouldn't admit that. Maybe you guys shouldn't laugh at me for that. But no, I'm secure enough in who I am as a guy to admit that I like going to see musicals with my wife. Um, some of our favorite memories are even from an anniversary trip we took to New York to go see several musicals we'd always wanted to see. So I found out that this show is coming to Dallas in the spring, and we've both wanted to see it, and it's hard to get tickets to, and it's very expensive, and kind of craziness around it. So I thought it was something we'd never be able to afford or do, but when I saw that it was coming, Ticketmaster sent me this email and said, you should try to become a verified fan with Ticketmaster, because it'll give you access to these tickets, perhaps. So... You know, it's their way of trying to get more tickets into the hands of fans who like the shows instead of ticket scalpers and, you know, uh, internet bots that just sell them at outrageous prices. So I signed up and they said, we'll, we'll send you this, this code, maybe. So I was, I was intrigued, like, okay, like, this is kind of cool. So, you know, I keep it quiet from Jen and I'm waiting on this, like, late night text message that's supposed to come in with my, like, seven-digit code. And sure enough, I get this code in, the, in my email and I get this email saying, like, here's how you can use your code. You know, it said tickets will open at this time. You're allowed to get four. You got to use your code. So I initiated what I called Operation Christmas Miracle, right? When tickets went live, um, you better believe I had done my homework. Like I had on my phone all these notes I had made, like which dates we preferred and which dates we could get babysitters and what times we wanted to see it. I made a list of all the performances that would ideally work. And so when these tickets go live at like 10 in the morning, I have my computer open with like, a dozen browser windows because you can pick any show from that whole season at that moment. So as soon as I get in, it says, you know, like 435 people are in line ahead of you uh, for the April 12th show. And so I click another one, like 960 people are ahead of you in line for the April 27th show. It's like, oh man, I'm so nervous. I'm like clicking around and, you know, grabbing seats and going to check out. And, and then it just says, you know, your seats have already been claimed. I'm like, shoot. So I'm just like, I have this plan and I'm working it. And about four times through it, I finally get tickets, you know? And I'm like celebrating because I've put all my Christmas eggs in one basket. 
That's like mixing holiday metaphors. But uh, remember, this is Operation Christmas Miracle, and I'm depending on it. And so finally, I, I get this, and I get this email in my inbox that says, you just scored tickets to the show. Right? I, I felt so relieved. Like, my planning had paid off. I, I orchestrated this way to surprise my wife with these tickets that she's wanted, and her reaction was worth every effort that I went into to getting those tickets. You know, we're, we're really looking forward to going to see the show in April. And so it might seem strange that I lead with that story about a Christmas present, but I promise I'll make a connection here. You see, I, I put a lot of planning and effort into those tickets, into that, that gift. And I will admit, I am not much of a planner. I'll tell you more about that in a little bit as we get through this sermon. Uh, but sometimes those words alone, like, what's the plan? That causes my blood pressure to rise, Right? But I put in this time and effort planning for this event several months away, and in the middle of it, I thought to myself, oh no, I'm going to be preaching on James 4, like in a couple weeks or in a couple months. And, you know, maybe it's weird to have those thoughts, Uh, like uh, maybe I should, this is all going to connect somehow. And then a, a few days after I got those tickets, a very close friend of my family's passed away, um, completely unexpectedly. And it was a shocker to our whole family and to a lot of people in the state of Alaska where my, my parents are at. And we've known them for a long time. And so as is the case when we start to, when we lose someone and, and kind of start to ponder our own mortality, my mind went to like a lot of different things. And one of them was those tickets. And that's such a weird connection, you know, uh, a show that's not really all that important but it was something I had spent a lot of time planning for. I had spent a lot of time like thinking about my wife's reaction and her receiving them. And then this friend passes away and I thought, what if, what if I'm not here when it's time for that show in April? I thought, what if something happens to Jennifer? Or what if we move, you know, and we're not in Texas anymore. In the back of my mind, there's James Four like nagging me saying, guess what? You're preaching on this soon. <laughs> You're going to have to talk about this. And so I say all this, this long story to kind of introduce this morning's passage to say to you that I have thought long and hard on prayed over this one for a variety of reasons, but I'm both excited to finally preach it and like scared of what it might mean for me and my family and for our church family, because if we listen to all the things in this passage and if we implement them, it could change our lives forever, the things that we're going to read. And I learned a long time ago that being in the center of God's will is always the best place to be, but it's not always the safest or the most comfortable place to be. I could tell you stories from my own life uh, living on the mission field and other places, but James is going to show us here at the end of chapter 4 that the best place to be and the best way to make plans is in the center of God's will. And so that's what we're going to see today, is that planning apart from God's will is sinful. That's what James is going to say here at the end of chapter 4. And so I've titled this message, A Faith That Trusts God. James is going to illustrate for us what a proper orientation of the heart looks like when it comes to our plans. So isn't it crazy, you know, even in this whole book that we've gone through, there's only like uh, one or two references to the heart uh, explicitly, and it's not even really in relation to the heart as we're talking about it today. But there is a lot of conversation that deals with our hearts in the book of James, um, right? He talked about taming your tongue uh, in chapter 3. And we talked about the fact that out of the overflow of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. You know, this is where being scripturally literate and practicing good hermeneutics, that is like how we interpret and understand the Bible, is so valuable when we're studying scripture because when we let the Bible interpret itself, we find riches in it that we could never imagine on our own. So the main point in these verses today is that we should orient our hearts towards God's will rather than making plans in our own power. So I'll, I'll say that again, just we should orient our hearts toward God's will rather than making plans in our own power. So James is going to show us that doing so, trying to plan our lives apart from God's will is arrogant and sinful. So let's, let's go ahead and read in chapter four today, really jump into James. If you're able, please join me as we stand and read these last five verses of James chapter four. It says here, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity we have to look at it this morning. Pray to use it to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So here comes James right out of the gate swinging with a, with a come now, right? He says he's immediately starting off with language that is commonly used to introduce an argument. And, and by the way, a side note here, this, it's pretty clear that he's still addressing Christians here. You know, there's, there's been some debate over the years about maybe this like five verses, he's talking to somebody else. Um, I don't think that would be the case. I've read a bunch of different guys who said that's not the case. You know, um, he does kind of what he does in other parts of this book, asks a rhetorical question, follows through with the correct God-given answer to the question. I don't think it's going to be any different here in chapter four. So he says, come now, you who say, and we don't have to guess who his audience is. He tells us right up front, you who say tomorrow we'll do this or that and go there and here and do, you know, make a profit. So, so is he calling out people who like to make plans? You know, we're, we're certainly not going to go that far because it's certainly not what's intended. Yet again, this is why another illustration for why we should read scripture in light of other scripture um, and don't just grab verses out of context, right? Like, don't tell your college professor you didn't write your paper because James said not to plan in advance. You're like, you're going to flunk that class. <laughs> like, write the paper. Um, but let me say, if you're sitting in here this morning and you've got your planner open next to your Bible and you've got six different color highlighters and, you know, tracking everything going on in your life, James isn't saying you're bad. <laughs> like, he's not saying don't do that. You can scratch out the note that says, like, send Adam a mean message after church on Facebook or put a check mark on it, whichever one, like, makes your planner heart sing. Uh, but it's funny when you sit down and think about it, about planners and non-planners, and even if you do a Google search like I did, like, types of people, planners and blank, and I left it blank, and it was, you know, it was, like, spontaneous people. Y'all, I'm married to a planner. Like, Jennifer loves list paper. Um, she has calendars on her desk at, her, at the middle school that could be submitted to an art museum one day because of like the writing and the scratching and the colors. And it, it's beautiful. But I told you earlier, I'm not a planner. Um, 
or maybe I'm really, really okay with not knowing what the next thing is going to be. Like, I once flew to a country overseas with less than 24 hours notice. I didn't know where I was going to stay when I landed without a visa to get in and unsure of whether I would not, I would meet anyone there when I got there. Like, <laughs> Matt knows what I'm talking about. And I, I, don't know, I don't know if this is a part of like coming, growing up on the mission field where ch- plans change and are in flux sometimes, but I've always been very okay with ambiguity, which might stress people out, um, which might stress other people that are in my life out. And like, I'm just like, okay, you know, kind of the like, whatever happens is good. Uh, I can take a fairly rela- rea- relaxed approach to most things. And it's not that I don't care, just that I'm okay with whatever the outcome is, you know. But God made each one of us unique, so I don't want you to be discouraged. If you're a planner or a non-planner, don't be discouraged this morning. Don't feel threatened by this passage because it's going to go a whole lot deeper than, than bullet journals and last-minute airfare deals, right? What James is getting at, yet again, it applies to all of us, the planners and the non-planners. So let's get back in the text. In verse 13, he says, hey, you guys who say tomorrow I'm going to go do this and that, and then he kind of drops the hammer in verse 14, right? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James is saying, you're not qualified to say what's going to happen tomorrow. You, you don't know enough, right? And that can be terrifying for some of us who like to plan. And it can be absolutely inconvenient for others, right? I don't want to get too dark and gloomy here today, but there's a reality that we don't often live our lives like they will one day end. It could be crippling to think that way. It could be, it's very unhealthy to spend too much emphasis on that, but it's also valuable to help us remember what's at stake, right? You could, you could fill a library with books written by people who have come to the realization, sometimes very late, that life is short and to make the most of it. You know, we, we have sayings that say that, right? There's, uh, I don't know, life is short, play hard, right? Or then there's a the Christian version that says, like, life is short, pray hard. See what they did there? They changed the L and the R. Um, or there's the phrase, the only guarantee in life is death and taxes, which is a great reminder to us all that it's tax season. Yay, you know, talk about uplifting messages here. Don't forget, <laughs> taxes are due. But notice, we often say that only when we're talking about taxes and not at funerals. <laughs> you know, I, I went to far too many funerals this December and January to not have some time for reflection on what needs to be a priority in my life. But we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that, right? We don't spend a lot of time thinking about how short our lives can be, but James doesn't hide from it. He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? That reminds me of all those, you know, videos that you see on Facebook where these loving family members are filming their child who just had his like wisdom teeth out and lovingly asking him questions <laughs> that are hilarious usually, you know, and I, I hear that phrase often. It's like, what is life? Or is this real life? You know, that, that makes me think of that. But they may have made thousands on America's Funniest Videos, but I think it's a real question we need to consider. What is your life? It's a question that even in this context brings to mind for me the responses of God to Job in the book of Job. You know, it's starting in chapter 38 when God responds to all of Job's questions and his friends and he, that they've brought up and he tells them how incredible he is, right? He starts with, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
And then he goes on to show how incredible he is. And God reminds Job and he reminds us of his power, of his creativity, of his, his provision, of his sus- superintendence over life. He reminds us of his transcendence in those verses. And so, listen, if, if you've forgotten how big and great our God is, I would challenge you, go read the last couple chapters of Job. You won't soon forget the hands that send forth the lightning or the one who set the limits in the containers of the sea, this, you know, seemingly uncontainable thing. James says, what is your life? And in comparison with the almighty maker and sustainer and creator with God. And then he goes to answer that question for us, right? He says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We may, we may buck against that or, or say, no, like I'm more significant <laughs> than that. No, you're, he says you're a mist, a vapor, fog, a smoke, something that's seen for a moment and then gone. And so, like, I know some of you wondered why I brought this bottle up here today because um, I'm not, it's not a patriotic statement. This is um, my daughter's water bottle. Uh, I let her buy this bottle last year, Jennifer and I did, when it was basketball season. And we, we told our kids, you guys can pick out any water bottle in the store that you want, but you have to keep up with it. Like, I've bought so many water bottles that um, I tell Jennifer the road to our retirement is lined with water bottles and bobby pins for hair. Um, like, I'm going to get to the end of that road and there's going to be nothing, but there's going to be lots of water bottles. But we got our kids these and said, you got to keep up with them. Um, so she picks out this one and I'm like, okay, cool. You know, it's like an American flag. And it's got this like gel insulated stuff. It'll keep things cool. And it's only when we get home that I discover that it does this, right? And we, we, we only discover it does that when she's chasing her brother around the house, like spraying him repeatedly, getting him wet, right? He's screaming for her to stop. But, but James says, you're a mist that appears for a little time and then disappears. Like, y'all, y'all can see that, right? I was hoping these lights would help us be able to see it. It's, it's momentary. It's, it's not a long thing. And James says, and he's not the only one that says our lives are like a mist. In fact, it's, it's an image throughout scripture that's often used and repeated. I mean, Psalm 39, 5 says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. So all mankind is a mere breath. Have you ever, you know, stood outside when the temperature is around or below freezing and you can see your breath? I know my kids love it. It's like they're, they're so excited they can see it, but it's, it's gone quickly. You know, Job says, remember that my life is but a breath. The word even in Ecclesiastes for vanity, you know, he says, vanity of vanities. Um, that's similar to the same word, vapor. It's short. It's, it's momentary. So I mentioned that we don't often go about counting our days, but Psalm 90 verse 12 also says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. All of what James is saying here and all of what scripture is telling us is that the days of our lives here on earth are short. And how do we steward that time that we have? Or maybe it phrases the question this way, how would you, the way you live today change if you knew tomorrow were not a guarantee? James is, he's getting serious on us again, right? These, these first two verses of this passage show us that trying to plan all of the events of our lives apart from God's will is the wrong attitude. 
the wrong attitude is trying to plan the events of our lives apart from God's will. To presume that we know better what we should do. So don't take that to mean we shouldn't plan. I already pointed that out. There's a, there's a stewardship and a, a caring even for your family that requires you take care of things and make plans. The problems come when we try to do it in our own power, when we try to do it in our own strength and leave God completely out of the picture. And so I was trying to think as I was talking about making good connections with Scripture and letting Scripture interpret Scripture, like what is a good biblical illustration for this? And one of the first stories that came to my mind was the story of Joseph. You know, there's so much that connects there with today that is related to this, orienting our hearts to God's will. But I don't, I don't want to get too deep into that. You know, that's another day, right? Uh, but remember the basics of Joseph's story. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, carted off to Egypt, put in charge of Pharaoh's household, falsely accused and thrown into prison. Then he interprets dreams, interprets Pharaoh's dream. And in interpreting Pharaoh's dream, the Lord shows Joseph and Pharaoh that the seven-year famine is, is coming to the land, but that they'll have seven years of plenty to prepare for it. So Joseph rises to this position of prominence and power, and he literally saves his own family. He saves the nation. <laughs> he, there's this huge reversal that takes place in, in chapter 42 of Genesis. The ones who had sold him into slavery come to him to ask for food. And because of how he prepared and because of how he planned for this famine, he saves lives that have otherwise might not have been saved at that time. So it's important to note here, Joseph planned well. Like I've, I've driven through Texas enough and seen enough grain silos to know what, it, what those are for. And I can't imagine what the grain silos in Egypt look like when Joseph was storing up like seven years worth of food. Uh, but before we jump back to James, let me make this connection with Joseph's story in Genesis. In chapter 41, he interprets Pharaoh's dream in verse 32, and he says this. He says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, that's the, the fact that Pharaoh had the dream twice, means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. This, this blows my mind. Like if, if you paid attention throughout the last 10 chapters of Genesis, you'll see God working his will out in Joseph's life to provide not just for Joseph, but for the whole nation and the surrounding nations. So what did, what did I say a minute ago? The wrong attitude is to plan the events of our lives apart from God's will. In Joseph's case, he had the right attitude, right? That's where we come back to James. That's what he's going to show us next. We know that the wrong, what the wrong attitude is, and now James is going to show us the right attitude is to plan, but to allow for God's will to change those plans. The right attitude is to plan, but to allow for God's will to change those plans. So let's look at verse 15 here in chapter 4. What does he say? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Have you guys seen that book? There's a book titled Eat This, Not That, or something like that. Or there's even a magazine, I think. It's kind of like James is saying that, right? Do this, don't do that. Or don't do that, do this. You know, don't say, here's what we're going to do, and then go and do it. Rather, you should say, if the Lord wills. And that, that kind of begs the question is, should we be walking around making every decision in life, asking before we make the decision, is the Lord willing this, right? If the Lord wills, I will buy this coffee maker. You know, if the Lord wills, I will click purchase on these plane tickets to 
wherever, you know. I think as is often the case as believers, we can quickly forget the meaning of things if we just wrote, memorize, and say them. You know, it's just a phrase that becomes almost meaningless sometimes. The phrase, Lord willing, can be one of those that I think we can even casually throw into conversation sometimes, not meaning it. Or how about my, one of my favorites is Lord willing and the creek don't rise, right? <laughs> You've heard that one. You know, that's, that's a bear to unpack theologically, but we say it. <laughs> so, in fact, even in the, you know, 17th, 18th century, the Puritans, uh, some Methodists, they would often at the end of a letter, after their signature and their name, they would write two letters, DV. You know what those stand for? Anybody, any, you know, grammarians, I know. Um, it's, it's a Latin phrase, Deo Valente, Lord willing. Like, they would, they would finish their letter and then say, here's my name, signed to it, Lord willing, this will happen. Or maybe even Lord willing, this will get to you. And so there's your historical tidbit. You ever see, like, a letter written with that? Then you know what it means. It's not digital video or, you know, whatever else we could come up with. But I, I seriously even have a friend that he went through a kick for a while where he said, if the Lord wills it, about everything. Like, are you going to pick me up in the morning? If the Lord wills, I'll be there. You know, are, we gonna, are you going to finish that sandwich? <laughs> like, he would say, if the Lord wills, I will finish the sandwich. Um, and there might be an extreme example, but James is saying this is what you should say. This is a, a behavior or an attitude. It's how you should live your life, leaving your plans to the will of God. He doesn't say, don't make plans, but he says, live in such a way that allows God to be a part of those plans or for God to make an adjustment for them in your life. So there's a trust in God that needs to be a core part of our lives as believers. His sovereignty should be something that we, we rest in and allow to direct our paths and our plans because he knows best which way we should go. And it may not always be the way we would choose. But if we trust him, if we believe the things that he says in his word, and if we believe the things that he teaches us about him, then we have no other choice but to commit our lives to him and our ways to him and our families and our careers and our money and our time to him and to him alone. So then it turns in verse 16 and 17, kind of close out this passage and it's in a sense kind of James's like shame on you moment, right? Uh, in verse 16, he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Remember where, what Brent preached about last week? Humility. And, and humility being the opposite of arrogance or pride that we see here. You know, chapter 4, verse 5, he, he read it. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That seems familiar, right? This, this theme is running throughout James. I mean, it started in chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. Oh, so, so be exalted in your humility, and then you're a vapor. <laughs> you're like a mist. You're like the grass that withers and dies, you know. James would not be a good Hallmark card writer. Uh, he's, he brings us down sometimes, right? But he's, he's reminding us of truth. And then he says, all such boasting is evil. At the core of this wrong attitude is an independence, like an autonomy, a, a boasting 
in what I can do. You know, saying, I can do this without God. And he's showing that all of this boasting is evil because it's boasting in yourself, in your accomplishments, in your knowledge, in your business prowess, right? But James knows and reminds us, and David knows and reminds us, and Paul knows and reminds us that God is the one who's given us this life. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 31, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who came to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, Paul, Paul had plenty of accolades that could accompany him before he arrived at a new, a new city. Um, he, had, he had been shipwrecked and he had been beaten and he had been killed and brought back to life, essentially, like stoned to death. And then all of a sudden he got up and was like, let's go back to that town. Like his, the guys following him were like, dude. Um, but Paul's resume was impressive. But he boasted in one thing. He boasted in Christ. And we would do well to do the same. And finally, James ends this, this section, this final line in verse 17. It says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. And we could, we could chase this one out for a while um, in light of what James has said and what we remember from chapter 2 about how we treat people and the practical aspect of our religion. I mean, he, we've gone through it here over these last couple months, not showing favoritism, caring for widows and orphans, doing good, putting God's word into action, not just hearing it, but being doers of it and being charitable and being generous and being merciful. You know, he's ultimately saying in this, I've shown you and you know better, <laughs> right? He's, he's saying, and now whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin. He says, I've laid it out for you. Whoever knows what to do and doesn't do it, that's a sin. It's, you know, it's often shocked me when I've said things to my kids that my parents have said to me. Um, that's always like a moment when you know, like, I'm a grown-up now. <laughs> like, I just said a grown-up thing to my kids that my mom used to say. Uh, I remember, like, making a bad choice. My parents, you should have known better. Like, I've said that to my kids before. Um, it's frightening when you say that, but James is saying here, you should know what it means to be a maturing believer and follower of Jesus. I've shown it to you, right? Um, and so you should know what the right orientation of your heart is to God's plan. And if you choose to do something opposite, knowing what the better thing is, that's a sin. So as we, as we wrap this up, as we conclude this message this morning, I hope that a couple of things have been clear from this. There are some highlights that we could summarize in these, in these simple words on the screen. We see trust in God. Remember, time is short. Be humble and do the right thing. Like, that's a quick little outline of uh, these last five verses of James. And as you read through that list on the screen, maybe you need to now take the moment to ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of which of those is the hardest for you to swallow. Do you have trouble trusting God? You can ask him to help you trust in him. You can spend time in prayer. You can read his word. You can remember Jesus' words in Matthew 6 to not be anxious. Don't be worried. God feeds 
and clothes the birds of the air, how much more so does he care about you and provide for you? Or are you living like tomorrow is a guarantee? Remember, David asked God, help me remember and number my days so that in doing so, I'll be wise. We ought to do the same. If you're a believer today, this means committing yourself to do what God's called you to do. We must be ready, like Jesus says in Luke 12, to stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master, being ready for when the master comes home. And if you're not a Christian today, remember verse 9, 14 here. Life is but a vapor. It appears and disappears quickly. Don't put off until tomorrow what you could take care of today, because tomorrow's not a guarantee. And I don't say that to frighten you or coerce you or scare or manipulate someone into a decision, but I know God's word says the days are short, and it says there's one way to be certain of your eternal destiny, and that's to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's an opportunity you can do that this morning down front with one of our elders in room 101 afterwards. Find someone even around you who will tell you more about that. And you may struggle with pride. The third one, be humble, right? This week's message and last week's are clear that God opposes those who are proud. That's what one thing none of us should want, to be in opposition to God. And finally, you may be struggling with doing the right thing. We've, we've read through this whole book of James now, and it seems like a good place to start as we look at our own lives as believers and seek to know what the right thing to do is. This book has the answers to those questions. And if you'll humbly come before God and put your trust in him and follow him and allow him to direct your plans and your desires and your heart, you will know what to do. It's not something that's so hard to figure out or discern or follow. So I pray that we would just pray on and reflect on these things in these next few moments. Uh, There's a final phrase I'd like to leave you with on the screen, and it's by a pastor named Kent Hughes. And he says, God willing is the posture of a burning heart. So I just ask, what is the posture of your heart this morning? As we, as we sing now and as we respond to the message, can you say God willing about the things that are happening in your life right now? I pray you'll consider that as we sing.